For those of you that are new, I'm Chris Garriott. I'm, I'm the campus minister here at Maryland, and uh, I've been at Maryland. I'm in my 13th year, so it's been a long time. They won't let me graduate, but um, <laughs> one of these days, one of these days. Um, we, we've, been, we've been going through Ephesians um, all semester, and so we missed last week because of the incredible snowstorm. Gotta love snow days. Um, and so we are in Ephesians chapter 2, and this chapter is really all about the gospel, pure and simple. This is, if you, if you want to know what is Christianity all about, like what is the main story of the Bible, this would be a great place to go. The first 10 verses, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, really just lays it out like exactly what it is. So we're going to look at some kind of big questions that you might have about Christianity. So if you've been a Christian or if you're, or if you're interested in knowing what it's all about, this is a great little passage to think about um, because it's kind of the authentic thing. It shows us what the authentic thing. They said that, um, the, the, I think it's the FBI or the Federal Reserve, somebody, um, when they're trying to figure out what counterfeit money is, they don't look at the counterfeit money. You know what they study? They, they study the authentic money. And when they know what the authentic thing is, just and they look at it and they study it and they know what it is, automatically they know it's false. Okay, when they see anything that doesn't fit that, they just know. And so when you come to Ephesians 2, you're going to see what the authentic Christian faith is, what the gospel is. So let me pray and then we're going to read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Lord, thank you for this night. Thank you for... Uh, the University of Maryland and the, and the blessing this school is to us, being able to have a, a room to meet in, food to eat, um, friends to meet, a new friends to get to know. Lord, bless our time tonight. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives as we uh, look at your scripture and you would change us as a result. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So hear God's word from uh, Ephesians 2. Paul writes, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so what does the Bible teach? This is the big picture of salvation. This is the big picture of God's uh, salvation plan right here in these 10 verses. And so the first big, we're going to do like four questions, okay? Uh, so we're going to run, what, what's wrong with us? What has God done? 
How do we gain access to God? What's my purpose? Okay. These are significant questions, right? You're in college. Um, you know, you're trying to answer these questions. What's the purpose of life? What's, you know, who am I? What's wrong with the world? Um, if you watched anything today on TV, I'm sure you saw, like, there's a lot of things wrong with our world. I'm, I'm not going to go into that too much, but um, it, was, it was just depressing to, like, hear everything. So, anyway, what's wrong with us? Well, what the Bible is saying is not that, like, we have a little bit of a problem or we, uh, we, our condition is, like, we're sick. But what the Bible is actually saying is that we're spiritually, when it comes to God, we're spiritually dead. We are dead men and women walking. So we're physically alive. But what the Bible is saying is that we're actually flatline, dead, no spiritual pulse. We are on the table and there's nothing anybody can do. That's our condition spiritually. It said, Paul says it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Trespasses and sin. What is that? What is sin in the Bible? Well, the Bible defines sin as really anything against God's law. Any thought, any word, any deed. So your motives, your thought life, um, your actions, your words, anything that goes against God's law. And God's law is found in the Ten Commandments. You probably have heard that. It talks about have no other um, God's before me. Uh, don't make uh, idols. Um, obey your parents. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Don't commit adultery. Don't cover your neighbor's things. Those are some of the things in there. And the Lord Jesus summed them up. He said the, the law is defined in these two ways. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, with every part of your being, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Israel, God gave the law to Israel as his an expression of who God is. It's like if Israel would do this, they would have an amazing society and culture. People would love one another and people would be attracted to them because they didn't cheat and steal and commit adultery and murder. And they loved God and it was supposed to be beautiful. And so it's a reflection of who God is. But another purpose of the law is to show us that we can't keep it. In fact, there's a word in the Greek that this, this word sin and it's the definition is missing the mark. It's like shooting an arrow at a target, at a bullseye, but like straying off. That, you know, it can be even a slight miss, right? It can, you can do almost everything. You can get a 99.99% on that test. But sin is missing the mark. And what God says about sin is that once you sin, you are totally polluted. And you can't connect with God. You're separated from him. Um, and so as Jesus comes on the scene, people are asking him, like, what must I do to be saved? Or how can I inherit eternal life? And he always brings them to the point where they really don't love well. Uh, they really don't love their neighbor as themselves. Uh, they really don't love people of other races well. The Good Samaritan story is about that. They fail in every point. And so Jesus is trying to show them and he's trying to show us that, like, we can't do it on our own, that we're sinners. And we inherit our sin from Adam and Eve way back in the garden. So to some extent, we have the DNA, the spiritual DNA of Adam and Eve who broke God's law when everything was perfect and they were in the Garden of Eden and everything was beautiful and wonderful and they had close relationship with God. 
They were our representatives and they blew it. And so what God says is since they blew it, this, we are cursed and we are under sin. And so Paul goes on to talk about in Romans how sin is like a worship disorder. Okay, So you might think of, okay, it's like, it's like breaking the commandments. So why do people break the commandments? Well, ultimately they break the command. Why does a person lie? Okay, Why does a person lie? Well, pretty much they lie because they don't want to be seen as bad. And so they make up a story, right? They, you know, they want to be seen as better than they are. And so we lie about it, right? The dog ate my homework or whatever. Okay. Um, uh, you know, we, so what is driving us? Well, there's an idolatry of like self there. Like, I don't want to be seen as like a, a, a bad person or a forgetful person. So I'm going to, like make a story up about it so that I don't seem as bad. So there's an issue there of like, I am on the throne of my life, not, not God, not just justification. I'm trying to justify myself. And so Paul says in Romans that sin is like a worship disorder. He says that God is revealed in everything we see in the creation, but instead of worshiping that God, we suppress him and we worship the creation itself. And so this is very easy to see in my life. And if you look at your life, I bet you can see this as well. We, what do we worship in our culture? We worship the American dream, right? We worship GPAs. We worship, um, we got to make a lot of money. We worship, I, you know, I want to have the good life. I want to have a lot of vacation and leisure. We worship ESPN and we worship the Orioles or the Ravens and we get heartbroken every year. We, or the Redskins. <laughs> Come on now. Um, we, we worship the Terrapins and they only, uh, hopefully they're going to do better in basketball tonight. Um, but you know, we basically our heart, it, because we're made in the image of God, he's made us to worship. But what the sin nature does is instead of having our hearts filled with God and the fullness of God, we suppress him out and we exchange it for other things. And we do this with millions of things all the time. And Paul's just trying to show us that guess what? We're under God's wrath, we're sinners. And so this passage is saying that when we worship something else, we actually become in bondage. And he mentions three things that we're, that sin puts us in bondage with. And theologians have called this the world, the flesh, and the devil. You may have heard those names, but the flesh is this idea that uh, he says here, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So the flesh is not our skin, okay? The flesh is, is our own sinful nature that wants to suppress God and worship things in creation, okay? So the flesh is not like sexuality. Sex, sex is something that God said is good, but what we do with sex is we make that ultimate and, and we give that a, a, like a God-like uh, status in our life and our sin nature twists that to make that ultimate. And so what our hearts do, what our flesh does, is we, we serve ourself. We serve ourself. And Paul is like saying we're in bondage to that. And ultimately, if you serve something in creation, it ultimately like destroys you. You just have to watch Breaking Bad to, to, to see. I don't know if anybody's watched that show, but... That, that character in there is trying to like uh, do something to make money because he has cancer and he doesn't want his family to starve. But in the process, he becomes a, you know, a meth 
uh, salesman, and uh, it's it's really a good series. But it shows it shows how sin will just totally wreck a person and change a person and put a person in bondage and actually destroy a person. And that's what the flesh does. He says the flesh, the world, the world is the world is not just the physical world out there, but it's the culture that's against God. And so we become enslaved with peer pressure or this culture that's going this way and God is saying we want to go that way. Um, the devil, every, you know, the, the biblical picture is, is there's Satan and he calls him here the ruler, the prince of the power of the air. Okay, that's not Jesus. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's a phrase Paul is using to explain the spiritual nature and, and Satan, the devil. And so he's saying there's principalities and, and a spiritual war that's going on. And in the Bible, you can't get away with it. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he's casting out the devil. He's casting out demons all the time. And he's because holiness shows up and the demons are like scared of him. And so you see this world uncovered, which is against God. And to some extent, that same world is here. Satan has been defeated when Jesus went to the cross and died. But he's still living. He's still kicking, so to speak. He hasn't been totally cast out. And so Paul is saying sin, this idea of trespasses and sin is huge. The world, the flesh, and the devil are seeking to bring us down. Seeking to control us and put us in bondage. And the final result is that we're under God's wrath. Where he says that we're children of wrath. Meaning that God is holy and he, and he demands perfection, he demands holiness, but his people are sinners and in bondage and wanting to go the opposite way and wanting to suppress God and worship everything else. And so he says because of that, it's like we're, we're being judged. We're under God's wrath. And his wrath is raining on us and ultimately... Um, that wrath is going to bring us to the judgment day if we don't have another person who suffers that wrath, and we're going to get to that. So this is the bad news. So welcome to RUF. <laughs> but, uh, but seriously, like when the Bible is a very real book, and it's trying to say this is how it is. This is how it is. And all you have to do is turn on the TV, watch the news, or look at your own heart and see that, you know what, I can see... This idolatry in my heart, I can see wanting to run the opposite way. I can see trying to hide. I can see trying to justify myself. And, uh, and if you can't see that, good prayer to pray is like, God, show me my sin. Show me, like, show me my, my, you know, what's wrong with me. Show me what doesn't work. Show me, you know, how this is truth. Um, and so I think if you pray that prayer honestly, God will show you that. He will reveal that. Secondly... What has God done? What has God done? And so verses 1 to 3 is the bad news. Verses 4 is the good news. My old pastor said you got to get sad with God before you can get glad with God. you got to hear the bad news so that the good news means something. So the good news is right here. This is, this is the gospel, 4 to 6. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. So Paul's explaining to the Ephesians who were, these were people who worshipped Diana or Artemis. Okay, these are people that were into black magic. And he came and he preached this message 
of the gospel and they changed and they repented and they, they, they experienced this gospel, this grace. And so grace is, the gospel is what God has done. A lot of people in, even in Christian circles think that Christianity boils down to like a code of ethics, which I keep in order to make myself better. And then hopefully God will bless me and God will bring me into heaven. And so I just got to keep working. I got to keep going to church. I got to keep trying to be nice to people. I got to, you know, keep my hands clean. I got to do the right things and then God's going to accept me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, A, you were dead in your sin and you can't save yourself. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. No pulse. But God, two words, but God did something. He was rich in mercy and grace, and he sends the Lord Jesus Christ to earth to live the life that we couldn't live. He perfectly obeyed God in thought, word, and deed. He loved God, and he loved other people. And then he becomes the sacrifice on the cross for us. And so you see in this passage, there's all these, God is the object, but God made us alive. By grace, you've been saved. He raised us up. He seated us with him. It's all God's the object, and we're the subject. It's what God has done. The gospel is the good news because it's not about Chris. And it's not about you. It's about what Jesus has done. And this is so freeing because you might be thinking, okay, it's partially me and partially God. No, it's all of God. It's all of grace. And as you read through the Bible, you'll see the, the intros to all of Paul's letters. He's like, you know, grace and peace to you, grace and peace to you, grace and peace to you, grace, gospel, gospel. It's all God's gift. And so it's not what I do. The good news is what Jesus has done. His death and resurrection for sinners. This announcement is the good news that God has worked in Christ Jesus. And so he makes us alive, he says uh, in verse 5, that he literally makes us alive. And then he says, it's by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this is the story of the gospel. That God sends his only son. Um, that God uh, sends him and he's born of a virgin. And he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he suffers under Pontius Pilate. And he's crucified and he died and he rose again. And on the third day he rose again. Then he lives for like 40 days revealing himself to 500 people, the disciples, who were all scattered until he rose from the dead. And then they understood and then he ascends to heaven and then he sends out his Holy Spirit uh, to the church. And then one day he is going to come back to judge the world and to bring his people into glory, into heaven with him, eternal, eternal life. Um, and so, again, the gospel is not what I do. It's what Jesus has done for me. And so how are we accepted by this? How are we accepted? Go back to the question. How do we gain access to God? In the passage, it says, it's, you're saved through faith. It says, this is a famous verse. If you want to memorize a great verse about the gospel, it's this one. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself, not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And he says that you appropriate this good news not by just intellect, not by just, oh yeah, Jesus lived just like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln lived. 
And I know that. I know in the history books he lived. That's not saving faith. In the Bible, what saving faith is, is when you cast your whole self on Christ alone for your hope. So some have said it's this. It's resting and receiving Christ as he is offered in the gospel. So it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like a wire on a battery terminal. The wire is the instrument that carries the current, right, to the, you know, to the car from the battery. And it's the same way with faith. We just rest on Jesus, what he did. And the instrument is the faith. Faith is not doing anything. It's just believing. It's just saying, I'm resting and receiving what Christ did for me. I'm trusting alone in him. Just like Josh is sitting on a chair. He's trusting the chair. Spiritually speaking, you're all sitting on chairs. That's what you're doing. <laughs> you are trusting that the metal in that chair is going to hold you up, right? And you can lift your feet up. It's like, ooh, yeah. It's like, I'm just, I'm resting. I'm trusting. And to some extent, that's what you do with Jesus. You say, Jesus, it's, my life is a mess. Like, I'm a sinner. I can't, I can't do it. But you did it. You went to the cross for me. You died. Now I'm just trusting and I'm resting in you. And so the smallest amount of faith saves you. It's not how big your faith is. It's the object of your faith. Okay, it's not how big it is. Some people think, oh, I just got to like get stronger. I got to know more. I got to get more faith. And there is something to say about, yes, you do need to read. You do, do need to comprehend what's going on. But you can have faith like a child. Remember, Jesus said the kingdom of God is, you know, like, like faith of a child. You know, they just believe. And to some extent, the smallest little bitty faith, if it's on Christ, if it's resting in Christ, you're saved. You have the Holy Spirit in you. He forgives you of your sins. And so um, this is how you become a Christian. It's just simply by belief, by resting in Christ and what he has done. And so this changes everything about you. Um, it actually unites you with Jesus. And he says here that um, in verse 6, he says, or 5, and he raised us up with him. So that when a Christian believes the gospel, you, you are raised up with Christ. You are in Christ in the heavenly realms. And then in the future, okay, back to the future, you are going to be given the riches of God's grace and kindness in Jesus. And Paul talks about being in Christ all through his letters, like 146 times. And he says, like, for the Christian, when you believe in Christ, you're not alone anymore. Like Hannah, Hannah gave a great testimony about understanding that Jesus was with her. And she could leave Texas and come to Maryland and not have her family right there. And God gave her peace because... She understood practically that she was in Jesus, like Jesus was actually holding her. And yes, that helps anxiety, right? That helps panic because you remember like, oh, I'm with Jesus. Jesus made me. He loves me. He died for me. He rose for me. He's with me. Um, maybe you're saying, gosh, I just don't have any faith. Well, there's just ask God, say, Lord, Help my unbelief. There was a story in the New Testament where there was a man and his son, he wanted his son to be healed, and he cries out to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And, and the Lord does. And then the last thing is, what's our purpose? Like, what's the deal with the gospel? Like, is it just, 
okay, I'm saved, me and Jesus, and I'm going to like go to heaven as like an insurance policy? No. What God is doing is he is renewing the entire world through the gospel. He's making all things new. And he's like saying, church, you people that believe, you're going to be part of that. He says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he's like saying, Paul's like saying to the Ephesian church who was lost and had no idea about Jesus. He's saying, you are going to be part of God's workmanship and you're going to do great things for God. And he's saying the same thing to us, like there's purpose. The purpose for the Christian is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To literally say in all of life, in my studies, in my relationships, in my work, in what I watch, what I look at, etc. I want to glorify God. I just want to glorify God and enjoy him. I want to, I want to enjoy good food. Okay. I want to enjoy, you know, athletics. I want to enjoy all these things because God has given me these things. I'm going to praise God and thank him and glorify him. And he's going to use you in other people's lives. You're created for these good things. You're going to serve people and love people like Jesus did. You're going to Jesus said, greater things will you do, greater things will the church do than, than he did because his Holy Spirit is working through you to do wonderful things. And so you have an amazing purpose, um, an amazing purpose to be remade in Christ to do good works for him. Um, I was reading today a little bit about John Newton. Some of you might know, everybody I think knows the hymn, Amazing Grace, right? And so John Newton, he was born like in the early 17, or 1700s. And when he was 11 years old in, in Britain, he, he grew up, I think, in Liverpool. He went to work on a slave ship. And uh, he was literally part of the slave trade for like 20 years of his life. And there was a storm that hit one time and he he believes that that was the first time he cried out to God seriously for salvation it was more like an insurance policy but later on he came to truly believe that he was converted and he understood um, who Christ was and he got to know people like the Wesleys who started the Methodist church and um, and and other other Christians in England but um it took him a while. It took him, even after his conversion, he was still a slave ship captain. He was still enslaving people and on that, you know, on the, the triangle or whatever, what do they call it? The, the uh, you know. Atlantic slave. Yeah, Atlantic slave trade. You know, the, what is it? The middle. The middle yeah, well, he was, yes. <laughs> but finally, finally, God brought sanctification to his life where he understood, no, this is evil. This is awful. And he went back to England and he developed a relationship with a guy by the name of William Wilberforce who was in the House of Commons in the Parliament of Britain. And William Wilberforce was also a Christian. And those two guys got together and they began thinking about how can we end the slave trade? And ultimately, through, I think, three decades... Wilberforce was the main guy. There's, if you, you can watch a good movie, Amazing Grace, it's all about that. But it took him a while, but God was building in his life repentance and faith, and he understood. He saw with new eyes what God's will was. And God's will was not for enslaving people. 
God's will was setting people free with the gospel. And so Newton, every day, this is amazing to me. No, every week he wrote a hymn for church. Every week he wrote a hymn. He wrote like 300 and some hymns, okay? And, uh, and Amazing Grace obviously was one of them. And so God took a person who was literally trading people for money and saved them, got their attention, and then did this wonderful work in the later part of his life where he was an Anglican minister and he was writing hymns and he was involved with stopping the slave trade. All because like Jesus got a hold of him. And so Jesus wants to get, to, get a hold of you and me. He wants to change our lives. Whether we've been a Christian for years or maybe this is all new, he wants to impact you and show you that the good news is about him and Jesus. And he's going to use you in this world to do glory things that glorify him. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this night. Thank you that we can gather and look at your word. And I pray for my friends that you would uh, help them and help me uh, to apply these words and to wrestle with these words. Um, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.